morning, everybody. Hope you guys are doing great. If you've got your Bibles, I encourage you to open them to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John. It's great to have all of you this morning. We are so thankful that you're here with us to worship with us today. And uh, I'm Barrett, one of the pastors here. And we are uh, really grateful that you're here with us this morning. We are in our second week of our new series, Word Became Flesh. We're going to be walking through the Gospel of John together from now until pretty much Easter with several breaks along the way. Uh, but if you have not uh, noticed already, there, there are guides that go along with this series. We want you to really be able to engage with this series here in worship on Sundays and also in small groups. And uh, if you haven't had an opportunity to check out the potential of getting a guide, I encourage you to do that. Uh, Today we'll be in John chapter 2 in uh, the second week of our study, which I've entitled Jesus, Our Messiah. Our ICC app has great resources for you, but I do encourage you to find some way to take notes this morning, and uh, we're just going to dive in right now. Let me pray as we continue worship together today. Father, um, we just thank you. Thank you for this day of this first day of the week, this opportunity to, to just start our week with just praise, loud praise, happy praise to you because you are, are the best, Lord. It's not just the words of our mouth, but truly what comes from the deepest part of our heart, Lord. This morning, we just tell you that you, you are the best. You are the greatest. All good is in you, Father. We thank you. We thank you for who you are, God, and we thank you. Oh, God, we thank you so much. I thank you that you, at this very moment, love us. And this is love, not that we have loved you, but that you have loved us. You gave everything, everything, in giving your son, Jesus, for the forgiveness of our sins and the giving of newness of life forevermore. We thank you, God. We come to worship you just telling you that our hope is in you, truly, God. It's on the rock of your work, Jesus, your love, your person, your faithfulness, your promise. It is on your rock, truly, that we stand. You are our hope. Everything that we need is in you. And Lord, we've chosen to follow you because you are the giver of life. We thank you, God, for your love. God, I, I just pray today, Lord, we are all uh, coming, we're here today not to go through your religious routine. We're here to seek you, Father. And I thank you that you're here with us. You promised that. And your Holy Spirit ministers to us. You know us, God. You know every heart, every mind, every life, every bit of our circumstances, everything that we need, God, you know it, and in you is life, Lord, and your Holy Spirit, you've given to minister to us through your living word, and I just pray this morning that you would meet us, that you would speak to us, that we would know, we would know your presence, and we would know your love, and that we would truly be able to say, God, everything we need is in you. So God, we thank you, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. If you've got your Bibles, I'd like to start by reading through the passage that we're going to be studying today, and then we're going to go back and walk through it uh, together. But again, uh, today we're going to be looking at Jesus, our 
Messiah. I actually want to start back at the end of chapter one. I'm going to read through chapter two. It's quite a chunk I'm going to read here. We're going to walk through it together. And I believe that you're going to see how it all ties together here um, as we study it together this morning and listen to God speak to us. We're going to start in verse 29 of chapter one. Part of this, of course, we've heard last week. We're going to read back through and continue through the end of chapter two. The next day, verse 29, I'm reading from ESV. The next day he he saw Jesus coming toward him. And he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the son of God. Now the next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold, the lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the 10th hour. And one of the two had heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we, we found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, So, you are Simon, son of John? You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We've we've found him of whom Moses and the law and, and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, "Uh, Can anything good come of Nazareth? Philip said to him, You come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, and whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? And Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were there under the the fig tree, I, I saw you. And Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You, you are, are the king of Israel. And Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe you will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? 
My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, you do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water, they knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you, you've kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers were sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables and he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. And you, will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people And needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. This is God's word. Don't you just love the book of John? Isn't it awesome? I just like, maybe it's like pastor geek of me, but I just like, I just love it. John is such a wonderful gospel And John's perspective, as we talked about last week, is such a unique and wonderful and needed perspective. John couldn't get over the fact, you know, he's one of the early 12 disciples, one of those apostles, one of the guys who Christ chose and appointed to be with him and then to carry the gospel forward to the world. And John could not get over the fact that Jesus loved him. He knew Jesus. And he knew that Jesus knew him. And yet Jesus loved him. That's why John so many times calls himself the disciple who Jesus, what? Who Jesus loved. 
And John writes the book with a clear purpose. Do y'all remember what, I, what verse I told you last week was the thesis statement for the book? Anybody memorize it this past week? Chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, anybody? Verse 31, it says clearly, these things are written. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these things are written. Why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Every single word of the whole book is written with a clear purpose that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Well, it's no different today in the passage of our focus this morning. The title of today's message, like I told you at the start, is Jesus, our Messiah. Jesus, our Messiah. And... I'll just tell you, um, some of you might be curious about uh, the word Messiah. Some of you might be curious about the word Christ. Let me just tell you that um, Christ is not Jesus' last name, just so you know. Um, It is a common mistake. I mean, we could, you could totally think that, you know, or maybe it's just like the second part of his first name. We don't really know. It actually is a title. And actually the two words, Messiah and Christ, mean the same thing just reflected in two different languages. They mean anointed. Messiah is the Hebrew word for it. Greek is, I mean, Christ is the Greek word for it. And both both titles mean anointed. The one on whom God's presence rests, the one who is appointed, anointed for a special task. We'll get talk more about this later. Focus of today's message is just pulled straight out of where John, his focus in the passage that we just read, and that is to show us, just like he says in verse 20, to prove to us that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, which is why I chose the word. I figured if, we, if I put Jesus, our Christ, people may not get it as much. Messiah seems to carry a more meaning, and at least in our language and our culture, trying to understand the distinction of that title, but the anointed one. Y'all ever been um, on a trip somewhere, and you were told to like meet somebody or to go to a certain place, and the only thing that you were given to try to help you figure out who it is that you're meeting or where you're going is just a description of different signs that you're going to see along the way? Y'all ever been on a, y'all ever done that? I, I've done that a few times. Tom and Sandra, are y'all here this morning? Maybe not. Tom and Sandra uh, Dayhart invited us to a cabin that they had down in Mississippi one time. And I remember they told us, you know, you'll know it when you see it. And we're like, really? How do we get there? Um, Let's go by this barn. There's going to be a big left. You know, when you go this highway, you get off the interstate. And then you're going to see a barn. You'll turn right. And then you'll go down a little bit. And two cows will be kind of sitting there by the fence. (laughs) And when you see the cows, you'll turn left. And you go a little bit of peace. And there's a there's, there's a fork. It's not too obvious, but there is a fork in the road. When you see the fork, you take a right, you know you're getting closer. And you get down a little piece more, the second mailbox with the little duck on it, you know, blah, blah, blah. And on it, I can't remember the exact directions, but I remember uh, thinking when they gave it to me, literally, I was like, oh, we may never arrive. And they had already told us the GPS doesn't work down there and good luck, the cell phones are out. And so it's like, okay, this will be fun. Sure enough, you know, uh, everything they said was right, including the cows by the fence. They were, they were there. And... Um, 
sure enough, we got there. I remember too, first time I ever went to Africa, I was with a group of uh, three guys from, from the States and we had never been out of the country and we were meeting this missionary who was going to greet us off the plane and we got out of there in this airport. And if you've ever been to an African airport, you know what it's like. It is just kind of chaos, at least from American little naive boy's perspective. And it's just like craziness. And all we had was a physical description of the person that we're supposed to meet, never met him in our life, never talked to him because he's totally unavailable with communications. And I was just thinking, oh Lord, please, you know. And we took that description and we walked around long enough until surely enough, we, we found Daryl there in the the airport uh, there in Bamako, Mali. It was crazy. There, we, we all are familiar with being given some instructions, some set of directions, and all we're given is essentially these signs that should point our way to eventually the destination that we're wanting to get to or the person we're wanting to meet. Well, if you can understand that, then I really believe you can begin to understand the framework, the mindset of the Jewish people as they are waiting on the Christ, the Messiah. Because from the beginning of time, ever since things went wrong there in the garden, ever since the brokenness that came in the human heart and the brokenness, therefore, into the world, the brokenness, most importantly, between man and God, things are just all out of whack. Things aren't as they should be. And people of God, because of the goodness and gracious promise of God that he gave to Abraham and then eventually to the whole people of Israel, those descendants of Abraham, the people of God eagerly anticipating and waiting for the one, the anointed one, the Messiah who would be the one according to all the promises and the prophecies of God who would set things right again to bring God's people back to God, to restore the world, to forgive sin, to to bring peace and healing to our hearts and to set right that which was wronged because of our own choice to rebel against God and walk away from his perfect presence. This longing for the one who was to come. And the people daily would wake, daily would pray uh, in all of their big rituals of, of, of Jewish life. I mean, they were eagerly anticipating the Christ. And they were given signs. It wasn't cows by the road or something like that, but they were given some pointers. God had revealed little by little, Here's, here is a sign of the one who was to come. This is what you're going to see. This is what you're going to realize. This is what you're going to know. This is what you're going to experience. This is how you're going to know that he is the Christ. He'd given signs along the way. And in this passage, we don't have a ton of time this morning to go deep in it, but I'm encouraging you to, to get plugged into a small group if you haven't already. Show up this week. Study this passage. Use your reading plan. But in this passage, John like he says in chapter 20, wants us to know that Jesus is the Christ. He is the anointed, which brings us to our main point this morning. In this passage, we see this, that Jesus is our Messiah. The one for whom, for who all time has the blessing, the authority, and the power to bring us back to God. Hope you write that down this morning. Jesus is our Messiah, the one who for all time has the blessing, the authority, and the power to bring us back to God. Just like Tom and Sandra did for me that day, me trying to get to their house, John does for his readers, including us today. And he gives five clear pointers in this passage Five signs, 
would you have it? Or, or just clear pointers is probably the better word because I want to reserve the word sign for something else. Five pointers that Jesus is the Christ. And I just want to go ahead and tell you this morning that my passion is John's passion today. I want you to leave today knowing and believing that Jesus is the Christ. There is no other Messiah but him. And I want you to believe in him. To believe in him with an unshakable confidence. And not just that, but to put all of your hope in him. And in putting your hope in him to find life in him. That's what I want. That's what John wants. That's what God wants, I really believe, this morning. So let's buckle our seatbelts. Are y'all ready for it? I told you how many? Five. Number one, here it is. Jesus is our Messiah. First sign is this, is that he has the blessing of the Messiah. You could also substitute the word anointing there. We don't use the word anointing as much today. We use kind of blessing, but anointing is a biblical word. The blessing or the anointing of the Messiah. I started back in chapter one. I wanted to dip back into last week because there in verse 29, after John says, behold the Lamb of God, he goes into the account of his baptism. As John the Baptist was baptizing with water, it says, John bore witness, verse 32, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. And then verse 33 I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom the spirit descends and remains, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. John is clearly helping us to know something about Jesus as our Messiah. He wants you to know that he's the Christ. And the first reason that you can know that he's the Christ is because he has the blessing, the anointing of God. In Judges and also in 2 Samuel, we realize that if you, if you just study the Old Testament, you'll see passage after passage to where the Spirit of God comes upon the people of God or a man or a woman appointed of God, f- anoints him for a specific purpose of God with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. We see that as a biblical precedent for, for God's sign of blessing and anointing upon his people. And what we know is... Um, in Isaiah uh, chapter 11. Let's look at that one first. Isaiah chapter 11, verse two. One of the things that was prophesied about the Messiah is this. It says, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. I taught this verse when we were studying Revelation last year, the seven spirits of God. And we know that the fullness of the spirit of God was promised to rest on only one, Jesus Christ. Those seven spirits, this was a messianic promise. We also know from Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1. Another messianic promise in the, from the prophet Isaiah, he says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. And he sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. We know that the spirit of God coming upon the Christ was one of the key pointers that we could feel confident that when he comes and when he 
exhibits that he is filled with the Spirit of God, that the Spirit remains on him, you will know that he is your Messiah, the one who has the blessing, the authority, the power to bring you back to God. Which is why John in his gospel is for you so excited. When he says there in chapter one, when John the Baptist saw Jesus, not only did he see Jesus as the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world, but he saw the Spirit of God. There it is, baptism, we know from other accounts. The Spirit of God in a clear way for men to see and believe. You gotta wonder, you know, there's a question there about the dove. We could talk about that for a while. We won't today. But in a clear way for the Spirit for the men who were there to see because this pointer needed to be clear if people were going to believe that he was the Christ, right? It needed to be clear. And there was no lack of clarity. He says, I saw the Spirit descend and then the key word and remain. Remain on him in verse 33. This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I bear witness that this is the Son of God. No wonder Jesus in another gospel, Luke chapter 4, stands up in the tabernacle and he reads from Isaiah chapter 61. That passage we just read, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He is saying, I am the Messiah, the one who is prophesied to come. I'm the Christ. Believe in me and have life in my name. Amen. Jesus has the blessing of the Messiah. The second pointer is this. The second pointer is this. Not only does he have the blessing of the Messiah, but he also has the titles of the Messiah. Jesus is a sign. He is given. He is named by the titles of, of the Messiah. If you look back at the end of chapter one, something I didn't focus on last week as we were kind of walking through this, and maybe some of y'all caught it as you were reading um, this week or maybe in your small group discussions. But let's, let's look back at it. I want you to focus on the titles, just the titles that are used in this passage. It says, the next day again, John was standing with the two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said, what are you seeking? And they said, Rabbi, where are you staying? And he said, come, you'll see. So they came and saw where he's staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. Now, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found his own brother Simon and said to him, what? We have found the... Okay, this is the participation part. We found the... Okay, do you think that's the title of the Messiah? Probably so. Seems pretty obvious. Anybody else want to play Captain Obvious with me? Um, Seems pretty obvious. We have found the Messiah. So there they are calling him the Messiah, which means... Christ. All right, so he's helping us see they're the same thing. He brought to him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, so you're Simon, son of John, you'll be called Peter. Jesus changing Peter's life right then and there. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee and he found him and said, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, what did he say? We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. What do you think he's talking about? He's another way of saying we found the Christ, the Messiah. They're all waiting for him. He's saying we found the one whom Moses and everybody else has been talking about. This is him. They're just so excited. 
Nathaniel's surprised because he doesn't believe anything good could come out of Nazareth. You know, it's pick the worst place in your mind and that's where Jesus came from. And he goes, seriously? Like, I came from there? That doesn't make sense. And Philip said, come and see. But then that, after that interaction with Nathaniel, Nathaniel in verse 49 says, Rabbi, you are the son of God. Y'all hear that? Son of God, another title that was exclusively reserved for the Messiah. And then he follows it up and says, what? You are the king of Israel, which is another title that was assigned exclusively for the Messiah, the one who was prophesied to come. We found the king of Israel. Jesus interacts with him a bit and then in verse 51, and he says, he's like, seriously, because of this, do you believe you're gonna see greater things? And then 51, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened And the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Again, one of the key titles, the exclusive titles of the Christ, the Messiah. All of these. Don't you you think that there is is not coincidence in Scripture? The Scripture is God-breathed. John is writing with such intentionality under the direction of God to include everything that we need to feel confident that Jesus is the Christ. And the second pointer that he's using for us today is this. He is showing us that Jesus is assigned all of the titles that were prophesied for the Christ, the Messiah, the Messiah to have. I just want to put up a a brief uh, a slide here that just kind of shows you how all these things are prophesied in the Old Testament. For instance, in 2 Samuel chapter 4, which is right in the middle of the passage where God gives a covenant to David, where he basically says that from your line, David, he's, from your line is going to come the Messiah, the eternal king. And God describes and he says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. This is just one instance, but we know that the Messiah would be called the son of God. In Zephaniah chapter three, verse 15, we have a promise, a prophecy that there is a Messiah coming. There is one who will eventually bring us back to God. And in Zephaniah, it says, the king of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. Who is he talking about? Is he talking about one of the earthly kings? No, he's talking about the Messiah king. There's coming a day, friends, where the Messiah will come and he will be called the king of Israel and he will reign and you will never have fear in your life again. There will be no cause for fear because he will be in your midst forever and ever and he will be called the king of Israel. In Daniel chapter seven, verse 13, Daniel, that book of of Oh, Daniel's amazing. Don't get scared of Daniel. It's confusing at times, but press it and study it because it's wonderful. But in Daniel chapter seven, this mysterious figure who has God qualities and man qualities is is coming. God is predicting that there is one who will come to be the everlasting ruler of all the kingdoms of the earth. And it describes him in Daniel chapter seven, verse 13. And it says, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a what? Like a son of man. I'm I'm saying all this to say that it is clear just in this small section of verses, John is setting up for us something. He's saying, look at the names of Jesus. Look at who 
These men are led to call him, to believe in who he is. Look at who Jesus himself proclaims that he is as he's saying the son of man. All of these titles are pointers. They're meant to give you unshakable confidence that Jesus is the Christ. He has the blessing, the authority, and the power to bring all of us back to God forever and forever. He is the son of God who he loves, on whom he has set his seal. He is the king of Israel, the rightful heir to the throne who was promised at the very beginning with the promise to Abraham. And he is the son of man. He will be the everlasting ruler of all of the kingdoms. He is the Christ. And Jesus himself there at the very end makes an allusion to Daniel, excuse me, to Genesis chapter 28. If you're confused about verse 51, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. You remember the vision that Jacob had? Genesis chapter 28, you can just write it down, maybe look at it later. But Jacob was given this vision, angels ascending and descending in this ladder, and it was to confirm that Jacob was the recipient of the covenant from Abraham. He would be the one who would continue that. The the heir, the Messiah would come through him. But Jesus, in saying this, is saying, I am the fulfillment of this dream. I am the fulfillment. I am the one now. I am the one. I am the Messiah. Your life will come through me. And you will not see in dream, but let me tell you, friends, you will see in reality the power and the presence of God rest on me and those who trust me. Isn't that beautiful? Oh, it's just awesome. Okay, so we got the, the blessing, the anointing of the Messiah, number one. We've got the what? What's number two? The titles of the Messiah, great. Number three, we have the signs of the Messiah. Not only does Jesus prove to us that he is the Christ by his blessing and by his title, but he gives us signs. This is why I wanted to reserve the the word sign because what we're talking about when we use the word signs in the New Testament is we're talking about miracles, special acts of God, radical demonstrations through the kind of change of the natural order, uh, radical demonstrations of the power of God resting upon Jesus. Here we have a story starting in chapter two of a wedding. Who who has ever heard this story before? Maybe y'all heard it before. Some of y'all like it because it has to do with wine. Don't you laugh. You reveal yourself. Now, I really believe that this story is people get all bent out of shape about trying to interpret this story in a million different ways. Here is my number one rule for interpreting scripture. If the scripture doesn't help you interpret scripture, don't go to try to reinterpret scripture. I don't go looking. This This is just what I believe should help you. Don't go looking for things that just aren't there. John, over and over in his book, as Jesus does miracles, explains to you why he did the miracles. He follows up miracles, usually with sermons that help you understand the purpose of the miracles. People use this story about 
water turning into wine, to represent, reflect all kinds of things. People have preached whole messages on things that aren't even in the scripture because they just believe that that's what it means. I'm telling you today, I don't feel confident to preach a message on anything other than the scripture. So I'm not going to preach a message on something that's not written there. Okay. Hopefully that makes you feel good. But here is one thing we do know. Jesus and his mom, Mary, and six of his disciples go to a party. They go to a wedding feast. And wedding feasts last about a week. And at some point in the middle of the feast, obviously the family wasn't planning well, or maybe they didn't have the means. But at some point in the feast, this wedding celebration, they run out of wine. And Mary, whether she's a guest, a good friend, or maybe one of the hosts, goes to Jesus. Some, some of the times we go to Jesus and we, we make the most silly kind of request, don't we? <laughs> We go to Jesus sometimes uh, not wanting him for who he is, perhaps, but wanting something from him. And I don't, I don't want to reinterpret Mary's motive, but she obviously knew who Jesus was. And she went to Jesus saying, oh, Jesus, could you help us with some, some wine here? We ran out. This could be really bad for the family. Could you help? And Jesus, showing that he's no longer under Mary's authority, calls her woman. He says, woman, why, why are you asking me this? Like, and this is it's not my hour. But Jesus obviously led by the Spirit of God, rests fully upon him, takes control of the situation. And here, for the first time, not in big public life, but in a quiet way, he performs the first sign, the first miracle that we are given in the Gospel of John. And he gives some instruction to those servants, and they take those six big water jars, 20, 30 gallons each, and we don't, doesn't say uh, that there's anything to be interpreted other than just this, that they pull, as they pull the water out and they give it to the master, that water turns into wine. I don't know about you, but uh, as hard as you might want it to happen, I've never seen a glass of water turn into wine. Y'all ever seen that? If you've had too much wine, you might've seen it. But it doesn't happen. And some of us read this like a fairy tale and this is not a fairy tale, friends. This is Jesus. This actually happened. Just as Jesus was crucified for sin, he was actually put in a grave and he rose from the dead. In the same historical way, this moment actually happened in the life of Jesus. If you're going to believe the Bible, you have to believe all the Bible. This has happened. And he took what was water, and as they went to distribute it and to drink it, it was wine. And it wasn't just any kind of wine. It was good wine. To the point that the master goes, holy cow. Most folks use the good wine first to get folks drunk so they don't know the rest of the wine's bad. Not really. He didn't really say that, but that's kind of what he implied, right? But you save the best wine. You got the vintage bottle coming out at the end. Whoa. And this, this. Let me tell you how to interpret this passage. You want to know how to interpret it? Let the Bible tell you how to interpret it. You ready? Verse 11. I just love the Bible. It's so fun to study. This, the first of his signs, which tells you that the other gospels that are not in the Bible, they're not right because they talk about Jesus doing some magical kind of stuff when he was a kid. Nope, that's not right. The gospels in the Bible are right, okay? This is the first of his signs. Now, why did he do it? Let the Bible tell you. Jesus did at Cana and Galilee and what? Manifested his glory. And his disciples, what? believed in him. Simple folks. Why did Jesus do this? Jesus did this to be a sign, to manifest his glory, 
to show you and me, his disciples there that day, that he truly is God. He is the Messiah with the blessing, authority, and power to bring us back to God. Amen? No one but God could do something like this. No one but God. He's showing that he has power over the natural order. He is the creator and the ruler of all things natural. No one can turn water to wine but God. He's showing he's God. Secondly, he's showing that he's merciful. He cares about meeting the needs of others. And third, he's showing that he is the fulfillment of prophecy. Because, oh man, I don't have time to do this. Time stinks. I hate time. I'll just mention, so like, if you, like the, peop, the, the people of God, I mean, I'm trying to think of how can I say this in the shortest way possible. The people of God were always promised that there was going to be a day that they come back to be in the place that God prepared for them. And that land that would be marked by one defining characteristic would be the place where God himself dwelt. And they would trust God and they would obey God and they would live in peace and prosperity in that place forever. We call that the messianic age, the place of fulfillment of all things to come. But by God's grace and love, those who trust God and his redemption, they would experience this. And one of the signs of that experience would be like Isaiah chapter 25 talks about this. He says, they will, I'm trying to paraphrase it here, so just forgive me, but he says, they will live with God and they will feast. They will, they will eat of rich food, rich food fattened with marrow and they will drink of wine, good wine. One of the, and this is repeated throughout the Old Testament, one of the signs of the Messianic age was that they would be fed and nourished by the very food and the wine of God. And I believe that Jesus is showing us not only that he's God and he's merciful, but again, he's showing us that he is the Christ. He feeds, he nourishes with rich, rich food and wine. Isn't it beautiful? So the blessing of the Messiah, the titles of the Messiah, the signs of the Messiah. And by the way, there are seven signs in the, in the book of John. There's a chart here. Um, you can download this always. We put all of our, our, our notes up online. You can always download this, but there are seven signs. This is the first of the signs in the book of John, but he's going to keep continue this pattern of showing us signs to prove that he is the Christ. So the signs of God for one purpose, verse 11, to manifest his glory. Do you feel confident yet? This is the Christ. If not, he's going to continue. The fourth sign is this. The fourth pointer I should say is this, the zeal of the Messiah, the zeal of the Messiah. Not only does the Messiah have the anointing and the titles and demonstrate his power by the signs, but he has the zeal that would accompany the one who God promised would come with blessing, authority, and power to bring his people back to God. We see this, this passage there in verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was at hand. This is the first of the Passovers John mentions. He's gonna mention three in his gospel. They're all really important. But interesting, during the Passover, Jesus goes to Jerusalem like all the Jews and surrounding uh, Area where they would all go to Jerusalem to the temple, right? Now, what was the temple? The temple was a place where God dwelled, right? It was that sign of God's presence among his people. It was the place where there would be constant sacrifice. Why? That shedding of blood, the signal, that symbol for the forgiveness of sins, the cost at which uh, sins would need to be forgiven, that constant place of shedding of blood, and that place that is on the most holy days, all the focal point of Israel is there on the Temple Mount at that temple. 
So Jesus, uh, during the Passover, all people are going into Jerusalem, right? And he says he goes up into the temple and he founds those who are selling, verse 14, selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. So what's happening is in the temple, there's like an inner area for Jews and there's an outer court for Gentiles. This is not super important, but in this outer area where non-Jews would be coming to seek to know God and coming to worship God, there were set up people who probably originally had a good intention because they're selling the, the very things. These people are coming in from a long way away. And so instead of having to bring the sacrifices with them, there's an opportunity for them to, to have the purchase a sacrifice right there in the temple that they would go to make their offering before the Lord. But what happened was over time, Malachi talks about this uh, in great detail, but these folks, these religious leaders, instead of this being a ministry, it became a business. And instead of it being deep down an act of worship, submission, desire to honor the name of the Lord, it became a surface level show game. The very place that God had set up to be the place where God's people would meet with God in true worship and joy in his presence had become nothing more than a religious game, a ploy to make money off of these poor worshipers. Even just exchanging money, the money changers, exchanging currency, just all for profit. And as Jesus walks in and sees this, especially in the court of the Gentiles, where the Jews should have been out there telling them about the true God, but instead are profiting off of these seekers of God. As he goes up and he sees this, he's outraged. And he says he makes a whip and he drives it out. Of course, we know that he's not going to hurt people. It's not in the character of God. And of course, we know he's not going to destroy property. But he makes a, a big scene, doesn't he? And he drives them out and he turns the tables over because Jesus has the zeal of the Messiah upon him. Jesus is passionate to see God's people worship God. Jesus is here to say, forget the religious games. This is not about business. This is about caring for people and their souls. Jesus is here to say, I want to see worship restored in the hearts of men again. I don't want to see people going into church. I want to see people worshiping God. And there's a big difference. Jesus is passionate for the glory of God in hearts of his people. And he says in verse 16, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered that it was written. This is a direct quote from Psalm chapter 65. Zeal for your house will consume me. Look, Psalm 67, excuse me, 67 verse nine. For zeal for your house has consumed me. And the reproach of those who reproach of, of those who reproach you have fallen on me. This is a messianic Psalm, obviously speaking of David, but pointing to the Messiah. And the disciples who would have memorized this psalm, they remember that this was promised of the Messiah. Was it not that zeal for the worship of God among the people of God and the house of God would consume the one who was the Christ? It is another pointer that he is, friends, the Messiah. And you can feel confident that on him is the blessing, authority, and power to bring you and all the world back to God for all of time. Amen. Zeal, zeal 
It's the same zeal that Jesus has today will consume me. Well, the last one is this. Not only does he have the blessing of the Messiah, the titles of the Messiah, not only does he show the signs of the Messiah and the zeal of the Messiah, but lastly, he, he shows us this, that he has the triumph of the Messiah. Number five is he possesses the triumph of the Messiah. After he did this in the temple, the Jews came to him and they said, uh, excuse me, who you think you are coming up in our business, turning over our tables like this? This is what we do here. We're trying to help the people, AKA we're making money here. Why are you disrupting our biz nasty? <laughs> and they say, excuse me, Why, what are you, what sign do you have to do this? And again, this is the first of the really contentious interactions that Jesus is going to have with the Jewish leaders. It's, it's a major theme throughout John. But this is the first confrontation that is here in his gospel. Not only does the zeal of the house consume him, but those who reproach God are going to reproach Jesus. He's going to fulfill that part too. They're going to hate him. And he goes, what, what do you have? Why are you doing this? And he says, well, I'll, I'll tell you. Jesus answered them, verse 19, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. <laughs> Did you hear this fool? From 20 to 64 AD, they were building this temple. 46 years, they were building this temple. He said, destroy this temple, he's going to raise it up in three days. You ridiculous dude. I'm, I'm paraphrasing what they might have said. <laughs> They're going to use this that Jesus said of his own words to come back and mock him when he's hanging on the cross. But Jesus says, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up. And the Jews, of course, feel like that's blasphemy and ridiculous. But verse 21, John interprets again for us what Jesus means. And he says, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed, they believed the scripture. And the word that Jesus had spoken. Jesus says, you know what, guys? I'm here now. This temple, this physical building, not where you're going to meet with God. I'm here. I am the presence of God. The word became flesh. I have tabernacled among you. Remember that from last week? I am the dwelling place of God. I'll, I'll show you a sign. I'll show you a sign. You're going to destroy me, my temple. You're going to destroy me. You're going to whip me. You're going to rip me to pieces. You're going to hang me on an old rugged cross. And you're going to think I'm dead. But in three days, I'll restore that temple and bring it back to radiant life. And you will know that I am the Messiah. And the disciples at this moment, perhaps, didn't quite understand all that he meant. The Jews certainly didn't. But they remembered as they encountered and stood face to face with the risen, living Son of God after his resurrection. They remembered what Jesus said. And they said, truly, that was real. He's triumphant. And in Second Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, we know this about verse 16. 
the Messiah. It says, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In other words, he's not going to be like David and he's not going to be like Solomon who reigned for 30, 40 years and then died and got put in the grave. No, the one who would be the messianic king, the true king of Israel, he would reign and his reign will have no end. And that's why in Psalm chapter 16, verse 10, in one of the messianic Psalms, it says, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your holy one see corruption. And truly, Jesus has the triumphant pointer to the Messiah because he is alive, friends. He ain't dead no more. He's alive and his life will never end. Friends, we're done. Do you feel the passion of John in presenting to us Jesus who is the Christ, the Son of God? Do you hear as he unpacks all this and he says, What more do you need to see? Let me show you. Let me just show you. He has the blessing, the anointing of Messiah. He has all the titles that were prophesied and promised that Messiah would have. He's showing us miraculous signs, showing us his glory, the glory that would only be on the one who is the Messiah. He's got a passion, a zeal that we've never seen before, an authority to restore worship in the hearts of God's people. And friends, he is saying he is triumphant and indeed history proves that he is. What more do you need to see to to believe that truly Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing in him, friends, don't you know that you can have life in his name? Amen. As our team comes and we transition to response, I, there is something you've got to decide this morning. You have got to decide it. It's not enough to hear it, to see it on the pages of history, to hear it preached or proclaimed, to even feel good about it. You've got to make a choice this morning. The same choice that the apostles did, the same choice that I have made. Here's the choice that you have to make. Do you believe that he is the Messiah? I'm asking you, do you believe that Jesus is the Messiah? Our main point this morning was this, that Jesus is our Messiah. For all time, friends, there is only one who has the blessing and the authority and the power to bring you back to God. But God in his love has given one in his name, is Jesus. The question I have for you is, do you believe that he's the Messiah? Do you feel an unshakable confidence that he is your only hope? Do you know that? Do you know that he is your only hope? There's only one, and he is your only hope. I'm asking you this morning to put all of your trust in him, in a fresh way, whether this is the first time or the 15,000th time, to just confess, Jesus, you are the Messiah. You are my only hope. By the word that I've heard today, Lord, I see and believe that you are the Christ, the one appointed to bring me back to God. And I put all of my hope in you. God, would you give me more life? Would you give me life in your name? I believe you, Jesus. Let that be your heart cry today. I'm here 
you want to pray with me, make a decision for Christ, join our church, there's prayer counselors in the back. You come and pray. Right now is your time to respond to God. Jesus is our Messiah with the blessing, authority, and power to bring us back to God. Put your hope in him.